I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. I so enjoyed reading the new biography by Ira Wells, Norman Jewison, a director's life that it got me thinking about movies, Jewison's movies in particular, the ones I liked and the ones I haven't seen yet. That Jewison is one of the more durable filmmakers in the second half of the 20th century is, is without question. He started making movies after success here in Canada at the CBC in the early days of television, as well as directed and produced uh, a television variety in the United States with Harry Belafonte and uh, Judy Garland, among others. His films in the early 1960s capture uh, Hollywood as uh, the old uh, studio system was ending. He directs people like Tony Curtis, Doris Day, Joan Blondell, and Edward G. Robinson. Then he moves into the mid to late 1960s with um, such iconic films as The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The Heat of the Night, and The Thomas Crown Affair. In the 1970s, he directs two very popular movie musicals of the era, Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar. He moves through the 1970s and 80s, working with such stars as Sylvester Stallone and Fist, Al Pacino in uh, And Justice for All, Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn in Best Friends, and Jane Fonda and Bancroft in Meg Tilly and Agnes of God, as uh, well as Cher and Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck. There was also a Soldier Story, a 1984 nominee for the Best Picture Oscar that featured a black cast. Ira Wells joins me now to talk about Jewison's life and times, his films, and the craft of uh, the movie business that's revealed through his research. It's fascinating to see how movies are cast and how much actors are paid. As well, uh, we see, uh, for the first time, insight from Jewison's letters, notes, annotated scripts, and memos, and more. Ira Wells is an assistant professor in English and academic programs at Victoria College at the University of Toronto. His writing has appeared in many publications, including The Guardian, The New Republic, The uh, Walrus, Globe and Mail, Los Angeles Review of Books, and America Quarterly. This uh, new book is published by Sutherland House. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, uh, Ira Wells. Professor Wells, good morning. Hello. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. But by the way, how do you make your uh, name into the possessive? Is it uh, uh, with, with the uh, S apostrophe or is it S apostrophe S? Uh, S apostrophe S. I see. Yeah. Um, it, it, I've always wondered that. And, and so I figured I've, I'm finally talking to someone with an S at the end of their name. I might as well <laughs> ask them. You know? Um, some might wonder why a liter uh, literature professor writes a biography of a film director. How did how did you come to write this book? Yeah, good question. So, um, well, I so my first memory of Nor of seeing a Norman Jewison movie was in 1999, uh, early 1999, seeing The Hurricane, mm. and um, I was um, in about first year university at that time, and um, in Calgary, and. Uh, Loved it, was enamored with it, thought it was a wonderful movie, as I think everyone did when they first saw it. Uh -huh. And uh, and I knew that he was a Canadian, and that I don't know how well you remember that movie, but it's about a bunch of Canadians who are participating in um, in trying to spring uh, Reuben Carter um, uh -huh. from from jail. And and so I just I felt kind of personally connected to the story, and that was the first time that I um, really became aware of Norman Jewison. And then he, had, in fact, I think right around there, it might have been the previous Academy Award, he won. Um, it's called the, the Irving Thalberg Lifetime Achievement Award, which mm -hmm. is a kind of you know a very prestigious Oscar. Um, so I so I'd always had a person felt like I you know 
sort of cheering this guy on as a Canadian, and I knew that he'd had a very storied career, but that's about as far as it went. Um, I was then, so I am a literature professor at uh, Victoria College, which just happens to be where Jewish and had been an undergraduate in the mm-hmm. late 1940s. He'd also come back and been a chancellor for Victoria um, in the early 2000s. And he had, he had started do, donating his archival papers to the library there. Um, his archival papers are um, personal letters, business memorandum scripts, the scripts mm-hmm. of all of his movies with um, you know, his annotations in them and the various drafts of them, contracts, just all the sort of text that he had generated through his life. Um, you know, it was a letter-writing culture. They'd written letters back and forth all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just all there. And so in, I guess it was about 2017, I was on a tour of the, the library. Um, the, the chief librarian was giving me a tour of the archives down in the basement, which aren't really sort of, wouldn't normally go there, but it's mm-hmm. sort of a temperature-controlled room, and she was just kind of showing me around. And, you know, here's Margaret Atwood's stuff, and here's Northrop Fry's stuff, and all this. Then she showed me this wall of legal um, full, you know, these big boxes just full of papers, and she said, those are Norman Jewison's papers, and I remember, I asked her, you know, has anyone ever looked through all that stuff, and she was like, well, here and there, but, you know, she, I, I hadn't, didn't get the sense that anyone had gone through it systematically, yeah. so I just remember going back to my desk after that and Googling, you know, I, I, just, I couldn't quite believe that no one had ever written a book about Norman Jewison before, but um, no one had, so, so I just decided that I was going to go through all that material. Yeah, you write. That was genesis of it. Yeah, so you write in, 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 at the end of the book, I think that uh, Jay Scott, the uh, famed uh, Globe and Mail uh, movie critic, uh, at one point had, um, I guess, was he commissioned or, or had he thought of writing a book before? Yeah, so he and Jay Scott and Norman Jewison were collaborating on some I kind see. of book themselves, and um, this was in the mid '80s, and I, I think it was going to be sort of partly in Norman's own voice mm-hmm. and. It was kind of a wild book that they were planning. But as part of that, Jay Scott had gone and interviewed all kinds of people, um, Sidney Poitier, Doris Day, um, you know, Rod Steiger, many mm-hmm. movie stars who he'd worked with over the years, um, who have now passed away. Um, and, and all these audio cassettes with these interviews that are all about their experiences with Norman Jewison are just, just sitting there in the library, so in the archives. So it, it all, yeah, it was, it, that all became part of the book. By the way, what did um, Scott think of Jewison's films? I mean, as a critic, I mean, I'm sure you've seen reviews. Um, I mean, are there reviews of, of of his work, say, by by Scott? Yeah, he. Um, it's interesting because the first Jay Scott of, uh, review of a Norman Jewison movie that I'm aware of is for Injustice for All, okay. uh, which is a movie with Al Pacino in the late 1970s. Uh-huh. And Jay Scott just destroyed it. He just wrote an absolutely withering review. Hmm. Um, really nasty. And it really got under Norman Jewison's skin. So I always thought it was so interesting that this guy who had initially uh, really uh, really bothered Norman Jewison. And that's one thing about Norman Jewison is that um, the, you know you might think that these guys are made of Teflon and they don't really care sure, what critics yeah. have to say. But he, he read all of his critics. And, and there's, you know, there's moments in the book where, he, where I describe that he, you know, he gets quite depressed he gets quite you know they really did bother him but he but at any rate i I don't i don't know exactly then how they had a rapprochement or what happened but they um they obviously patched it up and and began collaborating and i think jay scott um had a great deal of respect for norman jewison thought he was you know thought he was a real a real major auteur 
I, I ask about uh, Scott's reviews because, as, as you write throughout the book, um, it, he was not written too fondly by by people in this country. That's uh, right. Yeah, he got a hard he got a hard ride from Canadian critics, especially. Yeah, and and um, it, it, it's something that I mean, there's something there that, that's un, unfulfilled, and it, it, as, as you you said, it, it obviously bothered him. He'd, he'd write letters. Um, defending uh, the work or even his collaborators um, t- to these critics, um, but but that also goes um, back to, to to his parents as well. I mean, th- this was, I guess, an approbation that he sought from from them. I guess he sought that from home essentially, and, and never quite got it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I th- and I think that um, I think that the Thalberg Award was was very meaningful for him as a kind of um, Affirmation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pardon me, but um, yeah, he he got you know a great deal of critical success very early on with um, well, certainly you know he, he'd had a whole chapter of his career before in the Heat of the Night, but that yeah. movie really yeah. you know that movie um, came out in 1967, and it was so it was up for Oscars in in '68, mm-hmm. and it beat out The Graduate. Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all these like you know epochal movies, right, right, and um, and Jewison's film beat them all out. And 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 I guess he 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 um, gets his critical success in the United States, but it, it was really you know at home that he wanted. Um, um, I guess it, it bothered him, right? I mean that the, the critics at home, you know, or, or even if, when a writer from the I think it was a Toronto Star goes down to Los Angeles to interview him early on. Um, there's just this sort of um, curious criticism that, that that's written in, essentially a profile about him, how he lives, and uh, you know how how the house is like, and and um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, other Canadians get that when when they go elsewhere. I mean, they, they're they're loved elsewhere rather than at home. Yeah, I think it's an un- an unfortunate pattern, but it, it was certainly the case for Norman Jewison that. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you're right that they, the the Star and the other, the Toronto Star and the other papers would sort of dispatch reporters to go and um, check in on Jewison because, of course, he he got his start at the CBC in the early 1950s yeah. and was known uh, among Canadians, and then um, moved to New York, moved to Los Angeles, and um, and so they would go and check in on him for sort of uh, incipient signs of Americanization. Right? <laughs> You know, is he is he still a Canadian? And so he would make a point of showing them the. Uh, at that point, it was still when they were doing this. It was still the old flag. The the the, the Maple Leaf had just, I think, come in in 1967 mm. or something. But he would show them the the flags that he had, and he he was a great uh, collector of Inuit sculpture, and he made a big point of showing them that, and made sure that he. Uh, you know, and he really, I think, it remained a very proud Canadian his entire life. Yeah. Um, so, so um, he learns his craft essentially at at, at the CBC in the early days of t- television there, and he's brought to the United States to um, direct and and, and produce um, television variety. Um, he he really does have a um, a great sense of uh, showmanship and 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 um, a flair for for variety as a genre. Um, I, I've seen that um, special the. Um, the, the one with Judy Garland and, and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And I, I guess he also did the, the, um, the Judy Garland s- series as well, didn't he? He did the first six or seven episodes, I, I think. Yeah. yeah, and then it wasn't going very well, and he, but he'd only been contracted to do that the first half of the season. 
Um, and so this, the thing was a failure, but he had kind of moved on by the time, so he didn't really wear it. Um, but the, yeah, the, the, the Judy Garland show was not, um, was not a great success. What was it, the, the Judy Garland special that he directed was, was a big success. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, one of the amazing things is that he, you know, so he was in the CBC television um, studio on Jarvis Street in Toronto when the first televised image in Canada was broadcast. Um, and it was an upside-down CBC logo. <laughs> um, that was the first, the first televised image in, in Canada. And, you know, so... It's just amazing, and, that, and that, that was another thing that really kind of um, captured my imagination about Norman mm. Jewish and the fact that yeah. he's he's in the studio at the you know he's learning this he's learning learning this craft from the moment that it exists as a medium like he's you know his notes which I, I quote from in the book on on learning the the technical um, side of, of television production like he's learning like how an image gets from the studio to your TV and mm. like. You know, in, in very technical terms, and he's he's learning the, the medium from his infancy, and then you know his career goes until it. He was he was last trying to make a movie in t- 2010. Yeah. You know, so the, the entire 60 years. Yeah, and then so he, he he works in TV for a bit, and then he gets into filmmaking. Um, in in the early 60s, he's making movies with people like Doris Day and, and Tony Curtis, um, and then. Um, uh, Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen, you know that has uh, Joan Blondell and Edward G. Robinson, and then recent movies uh, with Denzel Washington, of course, and and um, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei. So I mean, it, it, the span that he has of Hollywood is, is and filmmaking is just remarkable. Yeah, uh, I think about his career in three big chunks. Uh-huh. Actually, four four big chunks. The first chunk is. When he comes in at the end of the studio era, which is what you're describing with the Tony, uh, the um, Tony Curtis and Doris Day mm-hmm. and and uh, Rock Hudson comedies, that's like 19 early early 1960s. And then you get the Cincinnati Kid, and that that really marks the end of the phase one of his career yeah. when when he was really beholden to the studio system, and and he really didn't have much of a say over those movies. They're a lot better than anyone remembers, actually. I think they're quite thoughtful. Yeah. He he kind of disowned them because he wasn't calling his own shots at that point. Um, he really starts to call his own shots with The Russians Are Coming, which is right after The Cincinnati Kid. Um, and that marks, then there's The Russians Are Coming, In the Heat of the Night, Thomas Crown Affair. Um, and that's a kind of, and then the, there's one called Gaily Gaily that came right after that, which I also think is interesting, but it wasn't a hit with the box at the box office. Um, and, and at that point, he's, he's kind of coming into his own as a kind of auteur. And then... He pulls the plug on his own career and moves to the UK in 1969. His friend Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated, mm-hmm. and he becomes very disenchanted with the United States. Moves to the UK um, and just reinvents himself as a really different kind of director. And this is, I guess, the third chunk of his career when Hollywood is is getting deep into the kind of um, you know gritty kind of like the 19, you think of those 1970s movies like Mean Streets, The yeah. Godfather, and yeah. all those. Jewison does Fiddler on the Roof, and he does Jesus Christ Superstar, and you can see him like kind of going back to, you know, that that sort of musical variety mentality almost that began with the CBC, and then Rollerball. So he, he does something completely out of line with with what's happening. But those movies are all hits; they're all very successful for him. Um, and then he comes back, and he comes back in the late 1970s, when of course there's been another paradigm shift in Hollywood, and it's now all about the 
the blockbusters, you know, the, the summer tent poles, yeah. Jaws, Star Wars, all the rest. And Jewison reinvents himself as a prestige, small, uh, sort of small but medium budget prestige filmmaker who gets the best performances out of major movie stars when they when they want to kind of do something outside their comfort zone. They come and do a Norman Jewish movie. So um, Goldie Hawn and Burke Reynolds and Al Pacino and Sylvester Stallone and Cher, and yeah. they, you know they come and work with him in the 80s and 90s, and that's um, that's how he that was the final stage of his career. Yeah, um, it, it, you, you, you know you mentioned all these actors um, that, that he's worked with. Um, I guess that's one of the more important jobs or parts of the job for a director is how to handle actors. What was Jewison's technique, and, and um, is it unique amongst directors in terms of how he, he dealt with actors, say? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, he started off when he was a very young man. He wanted to be an actor himself, um, and he, I think, even might have had some training, and he... he Acted in some student performances and realized that I think he even moved to Hollywood. He he hitchhiked to Hollywood at one point and tried to make it as an actor for all of about a week or ten days and it just was not working out for him. Um, but I think that that experience stayed with him. And the stories that you hear from people who were very close to who, who saw Norman Jewison directing, you get the sense that he did not have one approach that he uh, tailored his approach very closely to who he was working with, and that he was, in fact, kind of acting a role. Um, so I'll give you one quick example. Um, so uh, the filmmaker Bruce McDonald told me this story, that he was um, he was working as Norman Jewison's driver on Agnes of God, which mm-hmm. was in the mid-1980s. And he saw there were three strong female performances in that film, um, Meg Tilly, Jane Fonda, and Anne Bancroft. Yeah. And he said that, when Jewison was working with Jane Fonda, it was um, it was almost like a an ex girlfriend kind of vibe, like something that was like you know there was a bit of chemistry between them, like not not openly flirtatious, yeah, yeah. but there was a bit of something there. When he was with Anne Bancroft, it was like a brother sister thing, like they knew all the same friends, they all, you know they knew all the same people from New York and um, had a ton in common. It was like a brother and sister thing. And then when he was working with Meg Tilly. It was very clearly a kind of father-daughter relationship. Mm. So when he was at, when he was directing these three different women, very strong women, he was modulating his own how he was, was relating to them, and, and in a completely different way. And you know, I guess he, it wasn't really clear how he'd come to these assignments of how he was going to do this, but it was some maybe instinctual, or but yeah. that he he was not the kind of guy who would walk into a room and impose himself on actors, but rather he was quite clever and quite wily about um, modulating how he behaved to bring out the best of what they needed from him. Yeah. Yeah, the, the relationship with McQueen, for example, I mean, I, I found that fascinating to read um, about how, um, because it, be, it does become quite difficult, uh, especially during Thomas Crown Affair, um, how he deals with him, you know, and, and, and how frustrated he gets, and, and and then yet, you know, Dunaway, Faye Dunaway, uh, in, in that same movie, you know, has, has lovely things to say about what it was like to work with Jewison. And so you get these two, these different experiences from the same project even, right? Yeah, that's right. And, um, I mean, McQueen was, I think, um, 
absolutely one of the one of the, between McLean and Sylvester Sloan. I mean, those are the two really tough experiences that he had um, for different reasons. Yeah. McLean, I think, was was you know the the bottomless needs of McLean's ego were just um, uh, you know, he was just kind of a megalomaniacal monster almost. You get this this sense at least. You know, this is I'm getting some of this. This is all coming through uh, witnesses and stuff. Yes, so yeah. Obviously, no one can talk to Steve McQueen today, but you do get the sense that there was a powerful ego at work there, and um, and something similar with Stallone. So Stallone had just they worked together on a movie called Fist, um, F I S T, which is about a, a teamster kind uh-huh. of a um, labor leader guy. Um, and Stallone had just done Rocky, mm. and Rocky had, had was this massive phenomenon. Um, and, uh, he had just lost his manager, um, tragically to cancer, who was only in her mid forties. Uh, Jane Oliver was her name. Um, but she had been a great stabilizing influence on Sylvester Stallone's life. And the stories that you hear about Stallone in that period were that he, um, his own psyche was kind of merging with that of Rocky, mm-hmm. the character, and yeah. that he started to kind of think that he was the character. Yeah, bought into it, yeah. And was and was sort of demanding to rewrite the film on the spot, and in fact got a writing credit, much to the chagrin of Joe Esterhaus, who had, had developed that project and written the, the first draft of the or had written the screenplay. Yeah. Um, but uh, so for di- for different reasons, uh, Stallone was also a, very, a great challenge to work with. Um, although I think Stallone uh, sort of reached out and and patched things up a little bit after you know in the years after that experience was gained some maturity and some perspective on his career. I had a great laugh um, uh, learning about McQueen and, and how uh, he was with money. Uh, he, he invoiced, I guess, uh, Jewison because he took a shot of his watch. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, he billed him, billed him $250 because he'd filmed his own personal watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, would, would hit the crew up for gas money. <laughs> And then peel off in his Ferrari or his Porsche, and of course you'd never see the gas money again. Yeah. Um, but but you know he McQueen had a very impoverished childhood, and uh, and I think that was that never left him. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And so there's these stories of McQueen going to a restaurant, and he would order two of everything. Right? He would order two steaks and two soups and two you know mm-hmm, salads mm-hmm. and whatever, because he would be afraid that they would run out of food. He he just he really had that sort of baked in deeply. I, I enjoyed a lot the, the the sense of numbers too. I mean, you, you uh, describe how much he gets, uh, Jewison gets paid per project, or or uh, how much an actor gets paid per week. I guess this is stuff that you would have found in, in the archive, right? Yeah, that's right. A lot of those contracts, are, uh, not only contracts, but the um, the back and forth with agents would yeah. be in telegrams and memos and things like that. Yeah. The the other thing that I get a sense of as I'm reading the book, um, this doesn't apply to Jewison, obviously, but but it, it, it it's a it's a an insight into how, uh, uh, the movie business. Um, no one sets out to make a bad movie, do they? Oh no, of course not. Yeah, but it's, but but uh, you also get a sense of just how much compromise is involved. Yeah, yeah. And how you you know you compromise on one little thing because if you don't, the the movie you won't get the film made. Yeah. But if you go too far down that road of compromise, um, then then you lose all control of the of the picture. Yeah. But just going back to the money thing for mm-hmm, one second, mm-hmm. um, 
one of the things that was very clever that well one of, one of the ways in which Norman was very clever uh, was that he um, would often not he would often tie his own salary to the the, um, the box office of the picture. Mm. The, the, you know, he, would, he would take a slice of the gross, yeah, um, rather than so, and that that paid off for him uh, very handsomely on movies like Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, he would say, I'll, I, you know, I'll just take a very minimal fee, and then I'll take, you know, some very large percentage of the gross. And and some in some cases it was, you know, stupendous. Like yeah. I think in one, uh, in one, I can't remember if this was the final, the final contract that this is actually what he got. But around when he was doing in the heat of the night, he was there were contract negotiations with the Murrish Company, which was yeah. an independent producer that had was making all those movies. And at one point he was up to like thirty percent of the gross. Wow. You know, you think of yeah, yeah. well, if you were in today's terms, like if you know, well, it's it's, it's you can't really compare, but it's it's a, it's a very very high percentage. Um, and, and then in later years, he would use the same technique when the studios wouldn't want to make they, they didn't want to make a film like Agnes of God, right? Yeah, because Agnes yeah. of God is about a they would say who wants to make a movie about a bunch of nuns? Right? Yeah, or th- three, three 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 female stars, right? Yeah, yeah. They, would, they would say no no one wants to see a movie about nuns or. Uh, and just before that, he'd made a movie called A Soldier's Story, mm-hmm. which is an almost all-black cast. And that, too, there was just no interest, non-starter, from the Hollywood studios in the, in the early 1980s. And eventually he went to, I think it was to Columbia, and said, um, I'll work for free. I'll, I'll do it for free, um, and I'll just take a little slice of the uh, of the gross. Uh, and, of course, they didn't think it was going to make any money, so they're yeah. sure. In the end, he couldn't actually work for free because... The, the guild made him take like the you know the absolute minimum wage which he right. did, but he ended up doing very well on the film because it in fact was was very, quite successful. Yeah, you mentioned a moment ago that he, he is of an era where people wrote letters, um, and um, it must have been just fun going through some of the letters that he sent and, and, and letters that he received. Uh, you even found one from Roger Ailes, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you know. Seeing the actual letters that these people wrote um, is really quite enchanting. Like it kind of makes you yeah. feel like you're, and that's why I really wanted to, to put as many of those letters as possible into the book. And obviously, it's not the same as when you're touching it yourself. But um, I feel like when you're reading these people in their own words, you get a sense of you get a sense of who they are in a, in a, in a more intimate way um, than than if you just sort of getting someone narrating the life like when you actually get something that you know a kind of archival document that's just dropped in there i feel like it's it paints a bit of a more so there's crazy letters from hal ashby and um many of his his collaborators over the years mm-hmm. yeah roger, roger rails wrote him a fan letter for in the heat of the night said i don't usually write fan letters but in the heat of the night was the best movie i've seen in years or something like that yeah Got letters from Princess Grace of Monaco, um, the Golda Meir, the Prime Minister of right, yeah. Israel. They had a bit of a back and forth, um, and of course, and all the people that he was working with. Yeah, um, the um, uh, 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 correspondent of his is, is um, a woman named Alice Boatwright, mm-hmm. um, and we see a, a number of their letters in, in in the book. What was the nature of their relationship? So they met in, she was the casting director for To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. And he, he needed a child star 
for his very first movie, um, 40 Pounds of Trouble. And they met, I think it was at Universal, um, and she um, did a, was kind enough to do an interview. She's still working. I think I think that she's working at ICM, at one of the big agencies mm-hmm. in New York, and said that she just kind of instantly, um, they had, he just, he made a real impression, um, which he did on almost everyone. He was very, he yeah. had a certain twinkle in his eye, was very lively, picked up on his energy, and that they became very close friends for years. And I think, and, and may may well be uh, that may still still be in touch. I don't know. Yeah, you get marvelous. But, but some of those yeah. letters are some of those letters are really um, really fabulous. <laughs> you know, they they had a they had a real rapport. Yeah, you get a great insight that that he he probably wouldn't um, provide elsewhere or, yeah, or to anybody else. Right. And and um, it, the, the letters to her flirty, and um, you get a good sense of what the times were like as well, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. There's another archival document, um, which was a a poem that was un, unsigned about Faye Dunaway. Do you remember that one? Right. Yeah. A really nasty piece of work. But, uh-huh. you know, you, you, you think about, I mean, I guess we all know in the back of our minds that Hollywood was kind of a sexist place sure. the, uh, yeah, yeah. in the 60s. But when you actually see the terms in which people are writing, you know, Faye Dunaway was maybe 25, 26 yeah. during mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. time. Obviously stunning, you know, an yeah. exquisite person, smart, talented, and she was just berated by, you know, you, you get the sen- a sense of the, of just the kind of casual sexism around. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, which to be really clear, uh, the thing, the, the little piece of dog roll poem that I'm talking about was not written by Norm Jewett. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, yeah, in, in, the, in the stuff, but... Just kind of gives you a sense of the of the of what women put up with in the in the kind of pre Weinstein Me Too. Indeed, indeed. Um, the the marriage to Dixie um, that was a, a long lasting marriage, um, uh, not perfect. Um, what was he like as a husband, as a father? Yeah, fifty four years. Um, I think he had a he had a special relationship with each kid. And I think it was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense that you get certainly from, um, from Jenny, Jennifer Jewison, his daughter, is that they had a real connection, um, that he admired. What he loved about Dixie was her, her strength and her, um, that she was not a kind of shrinking violet, um, that she would like, you know, he, he described sort of tramping through Algonquin Park and that she would carry the canoe, uh, help carry the canoe, and, mm-hmm. you know, she was a tough woman, and, um, and I think that's what, what he admi- uh, admired about, uh, loved about Dixie, um, and yeah, 54 years they were married for. Uh, Ira, I'm wondering, um, as, as I'm reading the book, um, um, and, and you're, you're learning, and, and we're learning as the reader about how some of these movies are made, how does that affect how you view a film later, say. I mean, you, you know, there might be a movie that you, you're watching for the first time, um, so you, you obviously have the knowledge of how that was made. But but a movie like In the Heat of the Night, which you, I assume uh, you saw before you you did the book, um, did that change how you thought about it, or, or Moonstruck even? Or, or oh yeah, absolutely, in, in little ways and big ways, and um, and then also just thinking about what it, what the job of a director is. 
Yeah. I mean, so so within a heat of the night, sure there are, are um, when you when you get in and dig through and do the research, um, you find out that, for example, I don't know how well you remember that film, but um, there's a scene where the actor Scott Wilson, there's a chase scene, and he is um, running running away from um, some pursuers, and and um, there's a train, and he he like r- runs just in front of the train, and it goes by, and he sort of gets away. Mm-hmm. And when they were filming the movie. Um, that that shot was mostly just kind of like a, a happy accident. Like they had no idea that they didn't plan for that. They heard the train coming. They quickly set up the shot. That they they wouldn't have had enough money to actually um, pay for the the train or like do it deliberately. Mm-hmm. They they you know there are all kinds of things in that movie. It was kind of a guerrilla film that was not um, didn't have a big budget. Um, there are all kinds of things in that movie that were happy accidents. Um, and so you you know then when you go back and you I hope that if people have a chance to read the book. When they go back to these great movies, they will see them through a new light and, and have some of the, the stories behind um, that, that informed, you know, the, the the making of them. You know, I guess on a bigger level, what I learned was uh, really changed my understanding of what a film director is. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think of a film director, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people do, through this kind of... Um, what's sometimes called the auteur theory where you know you you think of alfred hitchcock or you think of quentin tarantino and and you think of a certain visual style you think that that's what a director is he he, you know he puts his imprint on these films through that he's the guy who's setting the camera up and he's and that's his vision what you what you what what i hope comes through in this book is that that is like the tiniest tip of the iceberg that there's a mountain of other things that go on before that that begin with when you walk into the room and you do your dance. That's what Norman Jewison called when you mm. walk into the room of film executives and you sell them on the idea. Because if you don't even get those if you don't get those people on board, you've got no movie at all. And then there's and then that only opens up onto the million other little dances that you have to do with the with the actors, with the stars, with the writer developing mm-hmm. the script, with the producers. That, you know, his life um, I don't mean to say I don't mean this in a, in a kind of you know overly negative way, but it was full of conflict. It was full of, of little battles that he had to win. Yeah. Um, with with everyone all along the way, and it was only because of his charm and his uh, toughness and his um, temerity that he was able to win all those battles and um, you know maybe win them to a draw. Certainly didn't win everyone, mm-hmm. but. Um, but when you look at the body of work, it really speaks for itself. So, so yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't think of film directors in the same way anymore. It's, it's not just about painting the pretty pictures. It's about thinking about all, all the stuff that led to that moment that they had to achieve. Yeah, I guess that's why they call it show business because it's it's the show part, and then there's the business part that we, as a viewer, say don't think about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the other really, you know. Um, Another thing that just differentiated Norman Jewison from so many of, of the other directors in that echelon of filmmaker mm-hmm. is that he really did work work with his collaborators. He worked with people like Hal Ashby, yeah. um, Haskell Wexler, um, his other uh, editors and cinematographers, Sven Nyqvist. Yeah. Um, he worked with those people uh, and brought the, the best out of them. 
and wasn't always so much about imposing his own vi- vision on everyone. It was, you know, he really, you know, the, the, the film scholars sometimes think about, you know, a director being the kind of auth- the author of their film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Norman Jewison's films are often what, what the scholars would say is a site of multiple authorship. You can see Hal Ashby's impression on those films. You can see Has- Haskell Wexler's impression on those films. Yeah. Um, in in the book, you you uh, um, I wrote down uh, there were two other directors who, who found inspiration in his work at a young age: Curtis Hansen, Adam yeah. Goyen. Um, despite that admiration that that um, a lot of filmmakers have for him, you say at the end of the book that that he really is missing from the critical conversation about film. I mean, there, he is he is a significant filmmaker that that people should know about and not just in Canada but um, around the world I mean considering his body of work yeah he hasn't gotten his due and uh, I hope that that'll change I hope that people will um, start to realize what a what an enormous talent um, he really was and I think that it's it's easy to understand I mean directors like everyone else in the world like every other profession you know they acquire a brand right Mm -hmm. and um they acquire fan bases and when you think about just how different norman jewison's movies are yeah the people who loved rollerball aren't the people who are going to love agnes of god the people who loved only you aren't the people who are going to love um in country his like vietnam movie you know those those movies are so different that they, I think that they prevented him from acquiring a kind of natural fan base. But the fact that they're so different tells you something really fascinating and interesting about who he is, which is that he was just so rest. He wanted to do it all. He was he was a restless person. He wanted yeah. to take it all in. He directed 24 movies. He never directed a sequel. Um, he would never have directed a franchise movie. Um, and uh, they, I think, at one point they wanted to do a sequel to Rollerball, and he was not absolutely not interested in that. Um, and so he, his, what fueled him was this restlessness to do, he wanted to do everything. He wanted to do musicals, dramas, you know, hard hitting social dramas, comedies, uh, science fiction movies, uh, or whatever rollerball is. It's sort of a science fiction sort of action movie. Um, and, um, he wanted to do it all. And because he did it all, it prevented the same audience from following him all the way. Um, but I think maybe we're coming around to a point where we can now look back on the sheer variety show of his filmography and realize what a staggering talent. The fact that he could do all that is itself just amazing. Yeah, I found it refreshing to read in the book that where he laments that, that he has this lack of fame. I mean, I, I guess directors, you know, want to be as well known as a Hitchcock, um, and he obviously wasn't. And, and he um, he talked about that, right? Yeah, he was conscious of that, for sure. There's yeah. this one, I found it really moving, this one moment where he's, this is in the late 1970s, and he's having lunch, um, doing, an, doing an interview with a reporter in Baltimore. They're filming Injustice, Injustice for All mm-hmm. with Al Pacino. And some woman comes up to him during the meal and says, um, uh, are, are you somebody? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, no. Yeah. And she says, no, no, who are you? And he says, I'm Norman Jewish. And then she says, oh, sure, sure, sure. And he goes away, and, and he knows that she's fake. <laughs> he, he knows that she's got no idea who he is. Yeah. And the reporter who's doing this interview just describes how he just kind of wilts. Yeah. Like, and he he thinks, 
that he that he had wanted to be a Truffaut or a Hitchcock or that he had sort of set that in his mind that was the goal, and at that moment he knew that that was not going to come for him. That he he could walk through any street, the street of any city in the world, and people would not, um, you know, would not rush up to him and ask for his autograph. And uh, you know, he was that William Goldman, the writer, said that he was one of the sort of invisible giants of the industry. Yeah, but then you know you mentioned the Thalberg Award earlier. Um, this is an award that, that um, uh, Billy Wilder received, Hitchcock. I mean, that's the only sort of recognition Hitchcock ever got from the Academy, just like Jewison. Um, and um, Jewison's own personal hero, Willie Wyler, received that award as well. So, I mean, you know, he, he is enshrined, I guess, in, in one way, but um, certainly not doesn't have the renown of these other people that I just mentioned, right? Well, he has an enormous, Jewison has an enormous amount of respect from in industry circles. Yeah. I mean, they, they look at this list of hits, you know, going on 40 years, and there's, there's no question in their mind, you know, the enormous talent and the enormous, uh, uh, just the sheer capacity to deliver over and over again. And you think about how many filmmakers were kind of swallowed up in that time. I mean, even major filmmakers, right? Like, you think of, you look at Francis Ford Coppola's yeah. career. Yeah. It was over in about half the time of Norman Jewison's movie, uh, yeah. Norman Jewison's career, yeah. uh, which and very different filmmakers. And I'm not saying that that Jewison's better or something, but um, but just the sheer longevity of the career is really astounding. Yeah. Um, a couple more things before I let you go. Uh, I could talk all afternoon with you about this book. Um, there's a, there's a, it's a, almost an aside that you you write in in the book that he wasn't a fan of Meryl Streep. Is that correct? Yeah, so that was in um, in the mid '80s, and um, at that time, the industry consensus was that there were three bankable female stars in the world. Um, and I'm struggling who they are. There was Jane Fonda, who he just sure. worked with. Yeah. Um, Meryl Streep, and the third was was it Anne Bancroft? I'd have to look it up. Yeah. There was one other. There was one other who they they said, and for yeah, for some it was one of those curious things that I could never really track down why that itself came from a kind of almost throwaway line in an interview that he did one time, mm-hmm. and he never expanded upon it. So I don't actually know why why he thinks or why he didn't uh, have the greatest esteem, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just found it interesting, you know, because you know, as venerated as she is today, um, and then she, you know, she was a big deal back, you know, going back to Deer Hunter in, in the late seventies through through the eighties. Um, you know, I don't know if I agree or disagree with 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 Jewison's uh, assessment, but I was just curious to know as to why he thought that. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm very curious too. And I, and I, oh, Sally Field was the other. Oh yeah, right, right. Um, another sort of, uh, you know. He, I don't think people today really think about Sally Field as being you know, in no. that category, but um, yeah, no. But I, I wish I knew more about that, the Meryl Streep thing. Um, it, you uh, dedicate the book to Michael Kovrig. Um, yeah. Why? Um, because I want him to know that he hasn't been forgotten, mm. um, and uh, I. I Asked his father if it would be possible, Michael Kovic's father, if it would be possible to send him a copy. Yeah. Um, it sounds not likely um, while he is still imprisoned in China. Um, but uh, Michael Kovic was is a graduate of the University of Toronto, where I'm employed, uh-huh. and um, uh, I think that 
you know, he's now been, he's now had a couple of birthdays in uh, being incarcerated in China, mm-hmm. um, appears to be no end in sight, um, a real um, victim of circumstance. And um, I think that it's the kind of thing that Norman Jewison was attuned to. I think that it was the kind of injustice that he, they got under his skin too. So it felt appropriate to me to dedicate the book to Michael Kovrig. Yeah, I, I, when I saw that, as I was reading the book, when I first got the book, I should say, um, I wondered why. And then um, as I was reading the book, yeah, I, I realized, well, I realized that the University of Toronto connection probably was, was something that played into it. But um, it just makes sense, you know? Yeah, I just, and I have to say that I, um, almost every day that I was writing this book, I was thinking about, and I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not, I don't mean to, um, say that the world is full of injustice, sure. of course, and I don't mean to sort of um, claim that that this this imprisoned person is somehow more important than any of the other you know yeah. false falsely accused mm-hmm. or, or imprisoned people around the world. But it was just something that got under my skin to think of that um, the of the injustice that he suffered and the powerless the apparent powerlessness of Canada and of our leaders to do anything about it and um, to think that at this very moment he is just sitting in under these conditions um, and with no apparent hope of release is um, just a, a great great injustice um, that I um, feel very passionately about that was why I dedicated the book to him Indeed, indeed. Um, as I said a moment ago, I, I could talk all afternoon with you. I'm, I, I, I have a few of the, the, the Jews and movies on DVD in my collection, so I, I, this is my weekend. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. I, 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 as I was reading the book, I wanted to see In the Heat of the Night again. I've, I've seen that probably three or four times. And um, as I tweeted a photo of your, your book um, the other day, um, a, a film critic here in, in Vancouver mentioned that he'd only seen Moonstruck very recently, and I realized that I've had the DVD for a couple of years now, and I haven't seen it. So um, I'll probably start with that. Yeah, it's uh, I think was it Vulture or some uh, you know some some big news outlet called mm-hmm. it the the spaghetti rom com we all need right now, and that was the uh, it's kind of having a moment. For some yeah, reason. and you Although know typically I, yeah. typically it's it's not. When people write, you know, there's been articles about Moonstruck in the New Yorker, and it's uh-huh. really sort of come, you know, come back. But typically, they never talk about Norman Jewison. Yeah, they always talk about Cher and Nicolas Cage. And you, you understand why? Sure, but, sure. You know, he he was the end, the mastermind. Yeah, and I did see Best Friends on TCM about six months ago, or some, sometime in the last year, uh, with Burt Reynolds and Goldion, and I actually quite liked it. So did I. Yeah. So did I. Yeah. I, I didn't like the fighting at the, in the when they were stuck in the in the. Um, in the writer's room, I didn't enjoy that part of it. But, yeah. Um, I thought it was a good film, and I thought it was just, a, you know, I was I was surprised to read in the book again that it was a Norman Jewison film. Yeah, that's that's right. And, uh, yeah, Roger Ebert gave that movie three and a half stars out of four. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and again, that you know, in some ways it just had, it was better than it had any right to be. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, congratulations on this book. It's a very fine achievement. I've enjoyed uh, talking to you about it, Ira, and, and uh, continued good luck with it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. The book is called Norman Jewison, A Director's Life. It is published by Sutherland House. Its author, Ira Wells, joined me on the line from Toronto, Ontario. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plata.